take the mark. Oh, he's a light, Gary Ampler. Look at this. Here is the magician at work. He shoots towards goal. What more can you say? Hargraves kicks inside the 50, bounces in front of Burns, Burns magnificently, this deserves a goal, and he's got it. What a classic. Inboard, awkward kick by Colbert, half-half ball, 50-50, Riccardi brilliant, what a goal this will be, matching! Can't break free of the tackle, and Rook rolls it along the line, oh. that is amazing! Steve Johnson, another one who the Cats will be hoping gets up today. Ooh, and again there's a turnover. And Edwards, the little genius, drives it home. Chapman can run in and finish the job. It's the Cats Whiskers. Hello, I'm Wes Cusworth. Welcome to the Cats Whiskers once again. It's great to have you on board, whether you're hearing us through one of a myriad of podcasting platforms or on Sport FM in Perth. This week, we catch up with 121 game player Sean Simpson, the father of current day cat Sam Simpson. But first, let's welcome uh, an abbreviated panel this week in Gus Marini and Mark Brunger. Megan Holtz is out. She's being managed. So too, Anthony Petkovic. So, boys, as we record the program, it's just days after a gallant loss to the Western Board powerhouse, the West Coast Eagles. What did you make of the Cats' effort, Gus? I, th- I thought their effort was A-grade. And, you know, it's, it's, it is great that we have got crowds back at the footy, but not great for the timing aspect, because I dare say if that game was played in front of nobody, I think probably Geelong uh, would have got the points at the end. I think that home ground advantage uh, really helped West Coast in the last quarter with, with that crowd. And um, But Geelong was very gallant. And those two factors, I think one factor being the crowd, the other being Nick Natanui, just just was enough for West Coast to get over the line. But there was nothing... I thought they were well coached. I thought they, they played their role. Uh, they denied West Coast the ball. It just unfortunately, didn't, they didn't, couldn't hold on for another, say, two or three minutes to take the points home. Would have been a bonus win in this season. Yeah, look, I, I agree with uh, with Gus, Wes. I think it's a, it was a very creditable performance. Probably just the, the telling factor in the probably the, well, the last quarter there was that the, the West Coast experienced players like Nat Nui and Kennedy and uh, Shuey and so forth just got on top of Geelong and then they put some of the younger players, less experienced players of Geelong, under a little bit of pressure and, you know, you see an errant handball from Asava Radigalia that doesn't hit the target or one of the other younger players who, who maybe fumbles a mark or something like that. And then, of course, you've got, you know, Nick Natanui, um, you know, palming balls straight to Josh Kennedy to run into an open goal. So um, certainly uh, a lot of positives to take out for Geelong. And it was interesting to hear Chris Scott saying that even though they came out with a one and two record from the, the Perth hub, that there's still a lot more to like about where the team is sitting at the moment. And there's, there's no doubt that 
that Geelong will be somewhere in the uh, in the postseason action. It's just a matter of where in in such a, a topsy turvy season. Yeah, I wondered if that was the case, whether or not, and Gus, no doubt you'll have a thought on this too, whether Chris Scott would have been, particularly against the Western Australian teams, whether he was happy with the 50% winning rate there. Uh, he wanted to win one of them, didn't he, against Freo or West Coast? Oh, look, I think, I think Wes, and I think it would have been very, very ambitious to want to walk out of Perth with three, with three wins. Oh, you know, winning two out of the three would have been great. Like we, if we escaped over the, the, with the Collingwood win as well. But I, th- I, I think being realistic to, to at least walk away with one win um, is, is four points in the bag. Then we reload now in Brisbane. We're going to be settled there for a while, it looks like. So I think now is the time for Geelong to consolidate. And I reckon that that performance against the West Coast Eagles seemed to indicate that we can compete against the best sides in the competition because I firmly believe the West Coast Eagles will be there when it counts. Oh, I've got no doubt about that at all, Wes. They, uh, they fired a pretty ominous warning to the competition the week before against Collingwood, who a lot of people thought were going to be thereabouts, although they've now dropped off the pace a little bit, Collingwood now. Um, but certainly, oh, I think when the, when the premierships uh, decided, oh, I'm pretty sure the West Coast will be somewhere in the mix there. Well, of course, later in the program, we will have Gus Marini's team talk. We've got the last kick of legends. But first, we're fortunate to have the opportunity to speak with former cat, Sean Simpson. Sean Simpson began his career at St Kilda after the Saints recruited him from East Ballarat in the powerful Ballarat Football League. Sean played just seven games with St Kilda before moving to Geelong in 1991, where his AFL career took off, adding a further 114 games while wearing the blue and white of the Cats. Playing primarily as a tagger or wingman, Sean featured in 10 finals while at Cadinia Park, including the 1992 grand final loss to the West Coast Eagles. In more recent times, Sean has risen to prominence as the father of current day player Sam Simpson, who was drafted to Geelong under the father-son rule with the 53rd pick of the 2017 rookie draft. He also has a daughter, Charlotte, who has captured the attention of many with her outstanding football in the Geelong Falcons girls lineup. Sean, welcome to the Cats Whiskers. Oh, thanks for having me, Mark. Appreciate it. Well, as we mentioned in the intro there, you uh, started your uh, football life in the uh, the very powerful uh, Ballarat Football League with East Ballarat. Um, Recognised as a pretty tough competition. Must have been a good grounding for uh, heading into AFL football. Yeah, it was a good uh, competition back in the day. My father actually played all his football at East Ballarat. So, um, yeah, I was pretty keen to follow in his footsteps. And, uh, yeah, no, I really enjoyed my junior football at uh, East Ballarat. Sean, tell us about your early days at St Kilda. It would have been a very exciting time with St Kilda being cellar dwellers for many years and then having the excitement machines of, obviously, Lockett, uh, Burke, Wimmer, these sort of guys coming coming through. Tell us a little bit about, yeah, about your time from first landing at Moorabbin and um, soaking in all the surroundings there. Yeah, Gus, back in the day, for those old enough to remember, I'm not sure if you three can remember, especially you, Wes, you, you might be a bit younger, but uh, Ballarat was the zoning area back just pre-draft and uh, uh, for St Kilda. So um, Greg Burns, Tony Lockett, Danny Frawley and the like all, all went down to, to St Kilda. And as a young 17-year-old, I was fortunate enough to be invited down to... Um, to a pre-season with with uh, the Saints, and yeah, I was awestruck sitting in the in the back seat. I was just looking at Frawley and Lockett in the front, and Greg Burns beside me, and I'm just pinching myself, thinking, "Am I really doing this?" So, and it was a real great leg in because when I arrived there, the likes of Trevor Barker and 
Jeff Cunningham and these sort of guys were, because I was part of the Ballarat crew and I was with the captain of the club and probably Tony Lockett, one of the best players in the competition and Greg Burns, a past best and fairest winner, I was automatically accepted as one of the boys. So as soon as I walked in, you know, Trevor Barker and all the big boys uh, had a handshake for me and I was um, pretty well accepted straight away. So uh, it was a good leg up to uh, AFL footy, that's for sure, or VFL back in those days. Harking back to those original days at East Ballarat, who were some of the influences on your development as a player? I know, you know, clearly your father had played at the club and he would have been instrumental, but were there some other people in particular? Yeah, there was one in particular, um, Graham Jolly. He, uh, he actually was from Derrenalum, I think, originally. He came to Teachers College, I think, um, in Ballarat um, and then went on to St Kilda and he, he was a fine player. He, I think he won the best and fairest at St Kilda in his first year, so... Yeah, he's no mug to do that, that's for sure. And and then he, um, I can't remember who it was, Wes, you might remember, but someone got sacked and Graham Jelly took over as coach there at one point um, off St Kilda. And then he come back to East Ballarat and he come back and I was actually only 16 years of age and the club gave me a few senior games that year and, and Graham Jelly um, really looked after me. He played and he was targeted very heavily by the opposition players and, and no one seemed to target me because of Graham Jelly. So I was very fortunate because um, Graham then ended up at, uh, at Geelong as, an, as a coach of the uh, reserves and that was sort of my pathway to getting across to the Cats really because of Graham Jelly. So I have a, have a lot of uh, respect and a lot of gratitude for what Graham did for me. And I think that was Tony Jewell that got the sack for Graham Jelly to make his way into the coaching fraternity? Yeah, that sounds right actually. Well, Sean, you mentioned some of the great names that uh, announced your arrival at uh, Moorabbin, but uh, also the coach at the time was an absolute club legend in Beryl Baldock uh, and a much revered man in football circles. They tell me he's a very emotional man and, and really loves his football. Tell us a little bit about the doc and your, and your recollection of your time with him. Yeah, the doc um, at the time, you know, as, as I said, I was pretty overawed by the whole experience. But when I look back at it, um, the doc was pretty passive, really, of what I've learned about footy now. Um, quite often we'd train in, in long tracksuit pants and everything like that to, to keep ourselves warm and that on a cold winter's night at Moorabbin. And, and, you know, that would never happen these days because you'd be training too hard. You just wouldn't be able to do it. But so I didn't realise at the time, but our training wasn't uh, particularly hard. I thought it was because it was a bit of a shock to the system. But when I look back at it now, um, you know, Doc was a little bit old school. And uh, some of the players that he recruited at the time was um, Kenny Sheldon and Wow Jones, Spiro Corkamilis, Ricky Nixon, and and a few of those Carlton legends that had, had a, uh, experienced a lot of uh, finals football and a lot of success. So when Kenny took over as coach, Kenny really shook the place up to a point that... Um, Oh, it went from one extreme to the other, really. Our training, our training sessions were where blokes were just doubled over in pain, vomiting, and, and just couldn't get through a session. I remember one night, Nicky Winmar, who was, everyone would remember was a great footballer, Nicky went off, said that he had a little bit of tightness in his hamstring. So um, Kenny Sheldon said, OK, boys, that's it. The session stopped. We're all waiting for Nicky to come back out on the ground. And, and, and we did. And when Nicky come back out, the session started again. We started right from the start. So it was a real shock to the system. Uh, for us guys, and even especially us Ballarat boys, because we only travelled down to Moorabbin two days a week, and we were entrusted to um, have a further training session up here with uh, Lockett and Burns and, and Danny Frawley and myself. And quite often uh, it was just a game of tennis or something pretty passive while the rest of the group were running, um, you know, two-game time trials and, and, you know, doing beat tests and things like this. So 
uh, we were the first to go up to Kenny Sheldon and just say, you know, what'd you get in your beep test? Because Danny beat me in a tiebreaker, you know. So we were telling him all our secrets. And then lo and behold, he ended up uh, the coach the following year. So um, his recommendation was to make all the Ballarat boys move down to Geelong at that point. And Danny was captain, so he moved down. And Plugger being a bit of a legend, he was pretty stubborn. He actually... Uh, travelled for a further 12 months on his own and um, I actually ruptured a kidney in my final year at, uh, at St Kilda so I was uh, Plugger's travelling companion at the time so uh, yeah we get, got on uh, really well. And just when the culture was changing Sean you found yourself heading down the freeway to Geelong uh, together with Jamie Lamb can you tell us about the circumstances that, that arrived for that to happen and was it a bit of a shock to you uh, knowing that you're going to be um, traded? No, no, it was no shock, Gus. Uh, not to me. Um, as I said, the, the, the last 12 months, I'd, I'd actually set out a footy at St Kilda with a ruptured kidney. So I pretty much went to the club and said, uh, I'd spent three years at the club, only played seven senior games. In my three years, I'd, I'd had a lot of injuries and, and culminating in the, in the kidney injury. So I was pretty keen to say... Uh, uh, wave goodbye to AFL footy because I'd, I'd been banged up pretty bad and, and especially the kidney injury I was I was really um, a little bit oh, turned off with the whole thing I guess and I, I wasn't real keen to, to return so um, I was pretty fortunate because um, Peter Hudson and Kenny Sheldon come up to our humble little abode in Springbank our, our a potato farm and sat in the living room and tried to talk mum and dad and, and myself into coming back the, the following year and I, I indicated to them that no I'd, I was keen to stand out of football and uh, so the club respected my wishes and then uh, lo and behold due to Graham Jelly who I mentioned earlier a phone call arrived from uh, Geelong and I pretty much told them the same thing said no I, I wouldn't be coming so don't waste a draft pick on me and um, fortunately they, they didn't hear that message and, and they drafted me so I was really happy that um, I ended up at Geelong and um, it was a it was a um, like a February type draft, Gus. I can't remember what they called it back in those days, but it was really late. I know that, and and I took a couple of weeks to sort of fire up and come down. I know we only played one practice match, and then the season was upon us. And I remember playing in a reserves in the reserves practice match against Collingwood, and at halftime I must have fluked a few kicks. And at halftime they took me off, and um, I went into the senior game, and I played on Darren Malone on a wing, and uh, I was pretty intimidated by him. It's fair to say, and. Um, I uh, must have fluked a few kicks again. And, uh, yeah, lo and behold, we played St Kilda in round one. And I, and I lined up in round one for the Cats in 1991 against St Kilda. And it was such a surreal feeling because, um, you know, Robert Harvey and Jason Daniels and Stuart Lowe and the like were, were singing out my name at the very rare occasion I got the ball because I played a real stinker, believe me. And, um, you know, their names felt, you know, when they were calling my name, that felt very familiar. Whereas the Geelong boys, I'd trained with them for two weeks and then I, I was playing with them and, and I didn't really know them, to be honest. So, um, and a funny story with, uh, oh no, a little bit later on in the year, Gary Ablett had retired actually. And, um, uh, he he joined us in. They talked him out of retirement about round six, I think it was, and he only played uh, trained in two training sessions and straight into the seniors as well. And uh, I remember sort of just basically reintroducing myself to him before the first bounce, and then at half time he coming up to me saying, "What was your name again, mate?" So um, yeah, it was an interesting season, nineteen ninety one. That's for sure. What was the turning point in your career really taking off at Geelong? Do you think because clearly. We know to actually play at the elite level, you've got to be highly motivated. The body's got to be in good nick. Everything, all the, the, the ducks need to be in a row for things to work. And 
you by your own admission were saying that perhaps you weren't even desiring that quite as much as some other players, but clearly there was a turning point. What was that turning point? Yeah, it's hard to pinpoint. Wes, I know my one desire was just to play in the Little League. Uh, we uh, buried for Richmond as kids and mum and dad used to take us down to see Richmond and Carlton probably one game a year. And My aspiration was never to play AFL footy, but to, to play in the Little League. And I didn't even get to do that. So uh, I was a little bit fortunate that I went a couple of steps higher, Wes. But um, yeah, I think it's probably just maturity. By the time I got to the Cats, I was, I was 21. And I guess the, the penny had sort of dropped a little bit. My body was getting a little bit... Um, more physical and stronger to cope with the rigours of AFL footy. And uh, in saying that, though, um, I was coming from a club like St Kilda who who hadn't had a very good record and, and going to a club like Geelong who just played in the 89 grand final and had all these superstars in it. And I'm thinking, you know, what, what am I thinking going to a club like this? I'll never get a game. So, But as you know, in footy, Wes... Um, Sometimes you just need the right people to like you and be at the right spot at the right time. And fortunately for me, I actually, in my first season, played every game at, uh, in the senior side at Geelong. So it was, a, it was a great turning point for me. And I think, um, yeah, you need to just play a bit of continuity in your footy and play a number of games uh, week after week to sort of believe that, um, yeah, OK, I can sort of match it with these guys. So I think it was that year. It took all of that year for me to sort of think, um, yeah, OK, this doesn't feel too bad. Sean, we mentioned in the uh, the introduction that you're a bit of a uh, bit of a run with player, as they call them these days, or uh, on the wing. Um, you did get down forward to, to kick a few goals every now and then too. What did you see as your role in the team, and and where did you prefer to be playing? Was it in the back line? Was it up forward? Was was the wing your your right spot? Yeah, I actually love that uh, that tagging role, Mark. I think it negated all my weaknesses, which was a bit slow, couldn't kick and couldn't mark. So, no, it was good, mate. Um, and and saw more for my mental capacity too. Um, Gary Ayres designed that role for me because I, I probably wasn't too bad of an endurance runner. So um, it sort of meant um, that I had a role each week in the team. And I'd get a video on a Thursday night, whether I was playing on a Robert Harvey or an Nathan Buckley. Listen to me name dropping here, Wes. And, um, yeah, so I always had, you know, one of the better midfielders to, to play on. So it just gave me a role within the side and, and probably just made me relax a little bit knowing that, um, you know, my role, it, it sort of changed the tagging role. Cameron Ling probably changed it really. My role at the time was if I was playing on a Paul Kelly from Sydney and he was a 30 possession man, well, my role was to keep him to 15 or under. And that was sort of, and it didn't really matter what I got in return. Whereas when Cameron Ling come in, he, uh, he was a bloody smarty, wasn't he? He, he um, kept in the 15 possessions and got 25 <laughs> himself. So, <laughs> uh, so Cameron sort of pretty much um, changed that role again. But yeah, that was probably my favourite role, as I said. It just was a real challenge each week and um, I really look forward to it. Sean, always interested to talk to guys who, who were run with players, taggers, because of the... I suppose the mental pressure that goes with it, I think you know, us watching in the grandstand probably take it for granted a little bit that, you know, that, that there's obviously the physical aspect of the endurance, but also too, having to always know where your opponent is. Can you tell us what it was like after a game? If you had a run with role with, say, a, a Buckley or a player like that, what, what, how intense was it for you? Yeah, they're all different. I, I remember sometimes, you know, as I mentioned before, we got a video to watch on a Thursday night and I remember sometimes turning it off halfway through because it was just too intimidating, you know, to, to watch anymore. But they're all different. You know, Darren Jarman, he'd be a type of guy who would um, take you to a contest, you'd see the footy and you'd look around and he'd duck back to the goal square so you'd lose him in transition. So he was different to, say, a Paul Kelly who was see ball, get ball. And, and, and I, I found those guys 
the best to play on because they're, they're just real bulls around the contest and they're pretty predictable. Whereas a Jarman and, and these sort of guys, they could they could do a little bit of everything and, and certainly they could weave a bit of magic and duck out the back without you seeing them. So, um, yeah, I just found them all different. But I think uh, the, the guy who gave me the biggest... Um, Oh, I didn't pull up too well at all after playing. I mean, was Robert Harvey. Like, his just capacity to really gut run was just amazing. And, um, yeah, certainly it would take me till a Wednesday or Thursday to feel okay after playing on him because he was just brutal in the way he could run. And, and he used to play with your mind too, you know. You'd be at a stoppage and he'd be pulling on his shorts and huffing and puffing and breathing heavy. And this is halfway through the first quarter. You think, how good is this? I've got this bloke. And, uh, like, he just changed gears and go again. Like, he was just unstoppable. Sean, I have it on good authority from one of your your players that actually rose through the ranks at St Albans when you were coaching there that you were considered a really forward-thinking coach at the time. And I'm just wondering what sort of influences your experiences with Malcolm Blight and Gary Ayres and those sort of guys had in terms of your coaching. And do you credit them with much of what you became when you went out to Mortlake and you went to Springbank and you had your experience at St Albans? Yeah, was uh, certainly credit credit them with everything really, and, and you don't really know it until you get in front of the group and you start thinking, well, what are my philosophies on footy? Um, so then you start speaking to the group and you think, wow, that's what um, Gary Ayres would have said, or that's what Malcolm Blight always said. And you just find yourself, and, and I didn't realise, you know, they had such an influence on me. The only thing I will say is that, gee, I wish I had a coach and then played footy. You know, I just found that. Um, I just would have been such a better footballer if I could have coached first and, and then, you know, maybe played footy. Obviously, we don't get the chance to do that. But I'm just trying to think. There was a guy, oh, um, Link McCarthy, actually, who's, who's at Brisbane now. He was having a tough run with injury and the club just sent him over to coach one of the junior sides. I think it might have been at St Mary's and that. And I was just thinking, wow, how good is that for a young player's development? Because I know with coaching myself, I certainly would have played the game differently if I had have, uh, played the roles in reverse, that's for sure. Well, Sean, uh, we've talked to a, a few of your uh, uh, fellow players from around that period about the, the 92 grand final. Uh, just be interested in your perspective of the game and, and do you feel like those other players do that it was the, the one that really, really got away from Geelong? Yeah, Mark, I think um, we were in front at half-time and, and I remember us hitting the post a number of times in the first quarter as well. So um, I thought we had quite a bit of momentum up and, um, you know, certainly West Coast were probably the best team for the year. But as you know, on finals, anything can happen and on the day. And, I, and we're in pretty good shape early and uh, it's probably just as that old saying goes, that third quarter, the premiership quarter, they come out and they, they kicked a few goals and Matera got on a bit of a roll and thank goodness I wasn't playing on him because you never want to play on the, on the Norm Smith medalist, do you? So, um, no, so I wasn't on him, which was good. And uh, But, yeah, no, look, West Coast were probably the best side for the year, but I just felt, yeah, certainly I would have loved a, another chance at that. We always know, Sean, that... Um Premiership players are celebrated. They have reunions. They have 10-year, 15-, 20-year reunions. Is there anything that you do with the guys that you played finals with to catch up? Do you still see a few of them around and um, are still good mates? Or do you have any sort of formal catch-up with them? Gus, um, we sort of rude the fact that we didn't win a premiership and yet, uh, you know, say for the likes of Billy Brown, or in my time, I was um, part of three losing grand finals. I only played in the one, but I was emergency for the other two. But... Um, you know, we rue the fact that we didn't actually get over the line in one of those big ones. So it didn't. It took until Timmy McGrath. You might have meant, uh, remembered that Timmy McGrath had a had an illness a few years ago. So Timmy said, "Okay, we've got no premierships to celebrate. 
But if me dying, is that a good enough excuse to, for us all to get together? So, so Tim come up with the concept that we should at least have at least two catch-ups a year. So we've done that ever since uh, Tim got sick uh, three or four years ago now. So, yeah, it's good. We always hold a couple of functions. And, it, and Billy seems to always make it at his Cremorne pub. Would you believe it? Where he, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. So quite often it's at the Cremorne where we have a, have a day. And, uh, yeah, it's always a great catch-up. Sean, if I can just pick up the coaching thread once again, given the experience that you had as a, a footballing mentor, did you ever aspire to make that your professional life and to go on and to coach at the elite level? Uh, well, there was a fleeting moment after coaching St Albans. I actually had the opportunity to go and uh, work at um, North Melbourne for two years. So I was Dean Laidley's match day runner and, and the club, North Melbourne sort of, as a runner, you doubled as a couple of other things as well. You got out on the track and you pulled on a vest and you shadowed Sav Rocker at uh, full back and joined him with all the training sessions and that as well. So I really enjoyed that experience. Um, yeah, probably um, there's only a small window of opportunity for that to stay open, I believe. And, and I probably my, my opportunity probably closed a little bit there. But yeah, I really enjoyed my time at North Melbourne and um, they certainly did things quite differently to Geelong. And, and that's uh, a great experience to see how another club does things. Sean, you did some uh, some great name dropping earlier in the, uh, huh. the podcast, which was fantastic. I'm good at that. Um, just on that, <laughs> a, no fat, keep it up, absolutely. Uh, a double prong question. Firstly, um, who was the the hardest of, of all those players for you to play on, and secondly, who was the one that you were most in awe of in terms of their ability at the game of football? Um, yeah, I played on a, a youngish James Heard one night. Um, it was a centenary game. I don't know if you boys remember it. We ran out in these long shorts and a, and a sort of a mock lace-up jumper and a little hat as well. Do you remember it, do you, Gus? Yeah, yeah I do. I, do. I remember um, uh, Gary Hocking, I think, kicked a goal off the ground. It was... Um, in, in, the, in the goal square, I, th I think he was lying on his back or something. I, I remember something like that. But you had the the 1900s hoops that's on, right. on, yeah, on that yeah. night. No, that's right. Yeah, it was a centenary game. I think it was 100 years the Cats had been in the competition or the AFL had been. I can't really remember. It was some 100-year thing. Anyway, I played on a young James Hurd and, and I thought when I watched the video on him, I thought, this is good because I think the week before I played on Paul Kelly and he give me backhanders for the whole four quarters. And I thought, this is good. This bloke's a gentleman and he, he won't hit me for starters. And I don't reckon he's that quick. He's got these big loping strides. So I think I'll be okay on this bloke. Wow, wasn't I wrong about that? He was one of the hottest competitors I've ever played on. And those big loping strides, let me tell you, they're very quick strides. Though he was flying, I couldn't keep up to him. Like I was, oh yeah, he, he was giving me the runaround, and uh, he was quite a nice guy too. Ablett, I can remember, did something miraculous that night, and James Heard just turned to me and said, "What's he like to play with?" And I said, "Yeah, you know him as good as I do." <laughs> so um, yeah, no, he he was a nice guy, but um, yeah, some of the things I remember playing on Nathan Buckley and and. Um, Oh, I must have fluked a couple of kicks on him. And there was a pre-season where we ran into him in Melbourne just as a group was an off-season thing. And he come over to, to Barry Stone and Billy Brownless and, and I was in the group and in the conversation and he walked over and he was talking away and, and I knew he was pretty keen to say good day to me. And I sort of thought, oh, I don't want this guy to see that I'm human, really. So I, I went to the toilet and, and didn't remove myself from that conversation because I, I just felt the only advantage I had on him was to, for him to think that I was a tiny bit nasty or something, you know, that because I'd played on him that year and, and you know, had a reasonable um, game on him. So I just, yeah, it was just one of those mind games that I was sort of trying to play because I knew 
deep down that he was so much better than me that, you know, I just knew that I had to play a little mind game with him. But, uh, but I'd love to run into him now and say good day to him and he probably wouldn't even remember me. But <laughs> I think he would. Just don't, um, just don't play tennis you- with him. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, he's, yeah, I could lend him a few bucks maybe to pay that fine. <laughs> when we look at today's game, um, when you look at the genuine run with players, apart from Matt DeBoer and a couple of others, a lot of clubs just don't choose to to run the gauntlet with, with a tagger. What, what would, what's your philosophy these days, Sean? Do you think it's still a role that probably every club needs to have one in their kit bag? Or do you see the philosophy that other teams say, we'll just go head to head? Or how do you, if you're coaching today, what would your, your philosophy be on, on taggers? Yeah, look, I, I think there's a, a need for them. I really do. You know, I think of um, Dustin Martin, you know, he's just such a, you know, he has such a big influence. Every time he gets the footy, he just makes you hurt, you know. And I just think, you know, as I said back to our day, if he's a 30 position man and you can keep him to, you know, 10 or 15, then it goes a long way towards you winning the game. And I just think, yeah, I certainly think for some teams for sure that, you know, Dusty Martin and, and the, the boy at um, Brisbane, uh, Lockie Neal, I just think he just gets so much of the footy and he's just such an A grader that his foot skills just hurt you so bad. I just, I just can't believe that they don't sit on some of those boys personally. Yeah. Sean, do you feel comfortable in enjoying the modern day game or are you so invested in what's going on with Sam that you still find yourself getting a little bit uptight about what's going on? Can you sit back, relax and just enjoy a game for what it is? Yeah, certainly, Wes. Yeah, no, I've, I've changed. And I think um, you mentioned before about coaching. I really enjoyed the coaching side of it. And, and unless as a coach you're prepared to change and roll with the way the, the trends of the game's going, then then you're not a real footy lover, I don't think. So, yeah, certainly the game's different than when we played it. But I love it, you know. Maybe some of the things aren't as good and maybe most of the things are better. Like, you know, the as the way they present as athletes, you know, their body shapes and that it's just remarkable the way they present and, and their foot skills and skills overall, it, it just blow us out of the water. I mean, we won the footy and just head down and we just kicked it. It was just a territory game. Whereas these guys now, nowadays, you know, the way they can get through traffic and there's so much traffic around them, you know, the way the, the little short handballs and that can get them out of trouble. They're just so quick. And I'm just in awe of the way, you know, they can move the footy. They can really make a talk. But in saying that, wouldn't you love to see a Gary Ablett or someone in the modern game, you know, getting their, their arms touched and that he kicked 200 goals a season, I think. So, yeah, so that's sort of horses for courses. But, I, you know, I, I love all eras, really. Sean, you mentioned this guy's name um, earlier in the, in the podcast and um, it would be remiss of us not to, not to ask your thoughts on it. But, of course, uh, football lost a great man last year in uh, Danny Frawley, a great Ballarat man and, uh, and one who you know, you shared your early days with. Um, can you just tell us from an AFL player's or former AFL player's perspective, what happens or what, what thought processes do you go through or what, what memories do you have of, um, you know, uh, the impact that that sort of um, event has on, on people? Oh, remarkable man, Mark. Um, yeah, I, just as soon as you mentioned his name, I started getting a bit emotional, really, because he, he had a huge impact on me as a person and, and a footballer, as a young fella going down to the club. And, and when the news broke, you know, you, I had to sit down, you know, you, had to, you couldn't knock me over with a feather. I know his family really well. Um, I know all his brothers and sisters, and, and they grew up on a, on a potato farm in Bungaree, and I was just the neighbouring town of Springbank, so um, potato farm as well. So, yeah, all very close. Um, 
my dad actually drove trotters uh, as a as a hobby, and and for Brian Frawley, Denny's dad, dad used to drive his his trotters as well before. And Frawley, you might know Wes, um, become one of the first female drivers in um, in Australia to win a group race aboard a horse called Vanderport. So um, yeah, Anne was a trailblazer in herself, and they're just a terrific family. Um, um, yeah, Shirley, Danny's mum. She's really uh, we catch up with her quite a bit. She's uh, lives not far from mum at the moment, so we catch up with her. And uh, yeah, she's uh, got a very heavy heart at the moment, as we all have, and it's just really sad there. And um, but yeah, just a great bloke. I heard Jonathan Brown the other day. Uh, someone punched a big fist there the other night. One of the Port Adelaide boys, and he said, "Oh, my old mate Sparta be happy with that one, the golden fist." You know, it went about. 30 metres over the fence into the crowd. So, so Danny was a simple footballer. I mean, I was, I was never in awe of him as a footballer, but as a competitor, like as I mentioned, you know, we had the, those games of tennis and that on a Wednesday night when we were supposed to be doing beef tests and that. He'd just, the game would go into the dark because it got to a point where you'd have to let him win, actually, because otherwise he'd stay there all night till he beat you. He was the most competitive person I've ever, ever, ever met in any sport. If, if you're playing tiddlywinks, whatever it was, he, he just have to beat you. So, uh, no, ripping bloke, uh, sorely missed. And, uh, yeah, he's left a huge legacy on the game. And, and for you boys, if you didn't know him personally, what you saw on TV, that's him. There was no acting. He was, he was just that man you saw on TV on, on the bounce. And that, there, was, there was no script needed for him. He was just being Danny Frawley and, and he was a ripper, yeah. Yeah, and, th- and thanks for that, Sean, because it sort of brings us into, into your world, a little bit of, of knowing Danny and um, the way you spoke just then about him. Obviously, you've got some treasured memories forever and a day. Um, speaking of, t- of today's game, obviously, it'd be remiss of us not to ask you about Sam. And um, we did mention before that, you know, a lot of clubs don't run with players and Geelong's probably one of them. Do you think there's any tagging DNA within Sam at all to take up a role like that? Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that, Gus. I was just looking at uh, a game the other night. Um, oh, who was it against Collingwood? And, and Pendlebury was sort of running amok, and, and Sam was having a pretty poor game. And I thought, oh, just a, maybe a way of getting him into the game. And it'd be a good way. I remember um, we used to use it as a teaching tool. Daryl Bulldog had me back in the day. I'm going back again, I'm sorry. But Daryl Bulldog made me run with Tim Watson when I was a 17-year-old kid in a practice match against Tim Watson. Uh, just to just to find the running patterns that he used to run as a midfielder and that. So, um, yeah, I, I just think um, it would have been a great learning curve for Sam to maybe go into a Pendlebury. Sam was having a poor night, maybe turn a negative into a positive, let him run on Pendlebury. He'd teach him a few tricks and, and if he could somehow negate his um, brilliance on the team that night, well, that would have been a, a win-win, you know. So, yeah, I actually thought of that while I was watching the game, to be honest. And it must be enormously satisfying for you to see Sam in action and particularly after that long advertised, promoted wait that we heard about at the start of this season and then he played that cracking game when he made his return. Uh, Of course, he is a VFL best and fairest winner at Geelong, so there's no shortage of ability, but he's obviously got great endurance and just great perseverance to hang in there as he has. Yeah, you mentioned that VFL best and fairest, Wes. I think that was... Uh, gold really in hindsight because it really um, toughened him up mentally as much as anything because there's quite a few opportunities for the club to play him and he, he didn't get picked and his position was there and uh, quite often he didn't get picked so I think it was really good to to teach him some resilience and just you know ply his trade week in week out and be very consistent with his footy and, and they got to a point last year where they played uh, a Gary Ayres coach Port Melbourne with the bigger bodies 
in a final and, and that was always going to be, you know, pretty physical outcome because Gary's boys are, you know, blokes who are working through the day and playing footy on the weekend against the, the young professional Geelong boys and, and the only way they could really beat them was to, you know, to see how mentally tough they were and, and by that I mean test them physically. So, um, yeah, I was, I was really proud of Sam that day. I come away thinking, oh, I might have seen a, a boy become a man that day. So, um, yeah, I was, I was just sort of more hopeful and confidence, Wes, but I thought if he got his opportunity this year, he'd possibly be okay. So, But it's just a week-to-week proposition for him. Um, he, yeah, as you mentioned, against uh, Brisbane, he was pretty good. And then the week later, he's very quiet against Collingwood and yeah so he's just finding his way at the moment so yeah just hopefully he can get some continuity in his games and, and week in week out and I'm pretty sure he won't be keen if uh, if the coach says to him would you like a rest this week I'm pretty keen he'll say um, no I'd love to keep playing because I think he realises that um, he needs to you know just hang in the team as long as he can so hopefully he can I enjoy watching him be great to be there live obviously. Sean thank you very much for your time tonight and thank you for being so candid and sharing some Wonderful memories, both in your time at, at Ballarat, at St Kilda and at Geelong. And um, it's, always, uh, it's always great to hear from past players, but there's always something that, that you, you pick up every week from, from players that's a little bit different. And, and tonight was no exception. So I really appreciate your candidness and uh, sharing your memories um, of your football journey with us. And we're, we're, we really enjoyed the chat and, and thank you very much and wish you all the best. No, I appreciate that, Gus, Mark and Wes. And uh, sorry for all the name dropping. Team Talk this week features last kick legends and what we're looking at is a team that compiled of players who managed to kick a goal, a point or even out of bounds on the full on the last kick of the day and if it wasn't always the last kick of the day it was pretty much close to it so we're going to take you back through yesteryear some of the great moments in vfl afl history and some contemporary moments only as recent as two weeks ago when we saw robbie gray kick a beautiful goal from the boundary line to steal the points for port against carlton so I'll kick it off with the back line, and it has got a bit of a Geelong flavour kicking it off with Zach Tui, who kicked that goal going forward against Melbourne at Cadinia Park in 2018. Full-back position goes to Barry Breen in, against Collingwood in the 66 grand final because of that point that was kicked off the side of his boot, that, that one point that gave St Kilda their solitary premiership. And in the other back pocket, Chris Tarrant, who kicked that that goal against Adelaide for the Magpies in 2003. Now, our halfback line features someone who was a bit of an AFL experiment, Carmichael Hunt. He did, however, live every VFL-AFL boyhood dream of kicking the winning goal against Richmond in 2012. Kerry Good at centre-half back, we all know, infamously kicked the goal after the siren, but way, way after the siren when Malcolm Blight delivered the ball lace out to him in the, on the chest to give North Melbourne the night grand final victory against Collingwood in 1980. And this is one that Geelong supporters probably um, wish they could erase from their memory. And that's um, the miracle on grass, Ash McGrath against Geelong in 2013. When Geelong led by um, around 50 points, at some stage during that game. And it was Ash McGrath who kicked the goal after the siren to steal victory for the Brisbane Lions. So guys, there we have six players who all impacted their team on the on either the last kick or very close to the last kick, but it's a mixed bag. So tell us what you think about the uh, 
the, the back line that we've put together so far? Oh, Gus, I think it's, it's a pretty good one. I, I'm going to completely ignore the Ash McGrath one because I choose to because um, <laughs> it was against Geelong. But um, I, I think you've got probably two of the most famous ones of all time in the in the back line there. Uh, Barry Breen, of course, to deliver St Kilda their one and only premiership. I think it's probably the most famous point in AFL history, no doubt about that. And the Gary Good one in the 1989 grand final. And I think... Everybody bar Collingwood supporters enjoyed that goal, primarily for the fact that it denied Collingwood yet another premiership. And I think that just had the, the little tinge of joy for the rest of the football community uh, in that. And we were quite happy that the umpire didn't hear the siren. But I do remember the Zach Tui one from a couple of years ago. Um, I'm part of the, the match day production team in the, the pre-COVID era of, of AFL football and uh, sit in the production box up in the, the Brownlow stand on match days. And I can still remember that night uh, that we were um, all sitting in there with uh, the reps from the footy club and, and, and so on and so forth. And when Zach Tui kicked that goal, our little box went absolutely cocoa bananas. And uh, it was just one of the, the great nights that I've had at the football because apart from the, the only other one which we'll come to uh, a little bit later on in the team. It's it's still one that, that I remember with pride for being there and actually witnessing it. Well, Gus, I think you're married to a Brisbane supporter, aren't you? Do you take any sort of level of satisfaction out of the Ash McGrath one or does that make it even worse for you to cope with? Oh, no, it makes it even worse. Whereas, and um, that's the thing too, I sort of haven't forgotten about it. And they, believe it or not, Fox Health actually, or Fox Sport, uh, replayed that game only a couple of weeks ago and for whatever reason I don't know and we sort of had to sit through it but um, no it's one of those things where now you, you get no solace having uh, a Brisbane supporter in in the family but yeah as, as I recall that that game Geelong was at that time that period where they just didn't drop games like that never not even if they were three goals up there once Geelong were in front they're pretty much home but uh, it was pretty much a changing of the guard in 2013. And wasn't that uh, wasn't actually a, a milestone game for Ash McGrath too? I think was that his milestone it game? Was yeah, you're right on yep. the money there, Mark. Right. That's spot uh, spot on. And look, I mean, I have a pretty strong recollection of the Zach Tui one as well. I don't, uh, I, I don't think I was in your situation, Mark, where I was surrounded by people that were supposed to be concentrating on the game and uh, and <laughs> unbiased on that occasion. I'm not sure, but no, great job. Uh, obviously, it would have been pretty exciting to be in amongst the Geelong faithful on that particular occasion. We're going to go to the centre line, guys. And as I mentioned at the outset, this is uh, brings back a lot of memories and we're travelling down yesteryear. But, you know, this team, actually the motivation for this team was the guy who found himself on the wing, Robbie Gray, who um, kicked that beautiful goal um, from the boundary against against Carlton a couple of weeks ago. Just, you know, that, that was only minutes after uh, his teammates and even himself were missing from 10 metres out. So um, th- that's that was a, the... Uh, I suppose the incentive for putting this team together. David Zaharakis wasn't the last kick of the day, but a very memorable goal against Essendon when when the Bombers came back in 2009, the Anzac Day game at the MCG, very wet Anzac Day. And um, out of nowhere, uh, the Bombers, as I said, 22 points down, came back, Zaharakis picked up the ball on the half-forward line and... um, and kick the winning goal. And on the other wing, well, how can we forget Peter Riccardi? We had him on uh, on the show um, a few weeks ago talking about this kick, whether it was touched or not. And this was against Carlton in 2002. It's what is now known as Marvel Stadium. So 
again, that's in a lot of Gray, Zaharakis and Riccardi. Um, where's your thoughts, especially with the Peter Riccardi goal? Oh, it's a, it's very much a favourite of mine. I think Mark's already alluded to one that's coming up that we're both going to get pretty, we're all going to get pretty excited about. But the Peter Riccardi one was enormously exciting back in 2002. And of course, the uh, the folklore that surrounds it with regard to the suggestion that the Carlton player on the mark actually touched it. Uh, the Robbie Gray one, of course, was only a matter of weeks ago. Wasn't that just an absolutely spectacular kick? And Zaharakis, I suppose, the big occasion. And that's what made the Barry Breen and the Kerry Good so memorable was they were in such big occasion games and so too the Zaharakis one. Yeah, look, I, I, I'm a big fan of the Zaharakis one as well. I, uh, I remember that game, as, as uh, Gus said, it was absolutely bucketing down that day at the G uh, and the, the poise that he had in, in such conditions to kick the goal from so far out was all class. But when it comes to Robbie Gray, I'd, I'd be interested in, in your esteemed gentleman's thoughts on this, but I'm not saying he is like Gary Ablett, but I think he has certain qualities of Gary Ablett Sr. in that he can kick goals that some of us mere mortals would never dream of uh, at times. And he has quite surprising physical strength in terms of getting rid of his opponent. And, and I find that very Ablett-like in, in his game. Yeah, I'd agree with you there, uh, Mark. I, I think he's got a lot of the Ablett traits. Probably what he doesn't have is the, the big body that can, that can hurt people at the same time or that blistering pace. But as far as the football now and the ability to do that, the, kick those goals that you mentioned, I, I reckon it's a very, very um, accurate assessment of, of Robbie Gray. And if we um, move to the forward line, again, this is going to sound very biased, but when, we, when I was we were going through the archives, a lot of these <laughs> last kick legends happened to be Geelong. So the forward line is, again, littered with a few. And we've got, on the half forward line, we've got Gary Ablett Sr. kicking the goal after the siren to clinch the game against North in the 94 preliminary final and send Geelong to a grand final. Tommy Hawkins... In 2012 against Hawthorne, when he marked the ball 50-odd metres out and kicked after the siren and the ball sailed through at post height to again, I think that made it 13 in a row for the Cats against, um, against Hawthorne. Uh, hence, you know, the, the curse was alive and well. And on the other half-forward flank, Ross Twiggy Dunn. It wasn't the last kick of the day, but as we know, he took a pack mark and then went back and best described as something between a torpedo and a flat punt was his weapon of choice to draw the game for Collingwood and North and thus um, have everyone come back next week for a grand final replay. And it was the first televised game um, that, that, that we had seen on, on Australian TV. And I moved to the forward line. Mal Malcolm Blight, as we all know, that 1976 after siren goal, that torpedo, which grows another five metres every year that we speak about it. Tony Lockett's infamous point against Essendon in the preliminary final of 96, which saw Sydney going to, uh, into their grand final against North. And Barry Hall is the captain of this team. And I'll tell you why, fellas. Because he's the only guy in history that has done this on two occasions. He did it with St Kilda. In 2001, it was his last game for the Saints ever. And it was round 22 against Hawthorne. He kicked the winning goal after the siren. He then moved 
um, and was traded and played for the Sydney Swans, as we know, became a premiership player. And against Brisbane in 2005, repeated the dose and kicked, kicked a goal after Siren to seal Brisbane's fate. So the only guy in league history to have done this twice. So there we go. If we look at those six talented forwards, Ablett, Hawkins, Ross, Ross Dunn, Malcolm Blight, Tane Lockett, Barry Hall. Take your pick, fellas. Oh, look, I'm, I'm going to go I'm going to go straight to Gary Ablett Sr. And I know Wes is going to go there too because it, it's just one of, as a Geelong supporter, it's one of those great games where, you know, Geelong were, Geelong were struggling against North that day and, and they really summoned a, a huge effort. And, um, you know, Gary Ablett was the man of the moment. And I can, I can recall sitting at the MCG, I was at the Punt Road end. Um, and of course, Gary uh, took that mark at the, the city end of the ground and, Everybody around me just instantly jumped to their feet and started to, to cheer wildly when Ablett marked it. And because everyone was standing on the seats and all that sort of stuff, I didn't actually see it live, even though I was there. I had to look at it on the scoreboard because I couldn't see through the crowd. So um, I'm still happy to say that I was there and, and that certainly sticks out. But I think the other two for me, Ross Dunn, I mean, Twiggy Dunn, that's probably the most famous uh, last-minute goal of all time to actually, you know, tie a grand final and then and then send it into uh, to a replay the following week. And I can I can still remember um, watching the replay on those grand final marathons every year when they played the '77 grand final. And um, I still don't know how the umpire actually plucked out the mark for Twiggy Dunn because it was about 75 sets of hands that were in close proximity to the ball. Um, and then the other one is the Malcolm Blight goal. Uh, uh, Princess Park and uh, as you say Gus I think it gets bigger and bigger every year I think it's out to about 100 metres now isn't it? Yes it is <laughs> The interesting thing for me is I just question whether or not as much as they were amazingly exciting experiences the Ablett and the, the Twiggy Dunn and the, the Plugger Locket and, and things like that are, that are the ultimate results diminished when you consider that Ablett won us through to a grand final we got beaten by West Coast Ross Dunn took the game to a draw and then came out the next week and North Melbourne won it. Tony Lockett got his side through to a grand final, yet they couldn't do it the next week. Does that make Barry Hills even more special? Because, of course, with Sydney in 05, they did go on and win it, didn't they? So, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So, uh, good choice for Captain Gus, no doubt. Look, I think it's just part of the fairy tale fabric of, of our game and it's what makes us all so passionate and enjoy the game so much because, you know, we don't necessarily remember who who won Brownlow medals or, or who won premierships in specific years. But if you ask someone about Malcolm Blight kicking a goal after the siren, most people of our generation are going to go, oh, yeah, remember that goal? He was a mile out. And, you know, that's part of the folklore legend of the game regardless of the result. No, it certainly is. And, um, and we, if we look at the Ruck division, it's a little bit more contemporary with a couple of them. But um, again, the memories, memories are, there, are there for us to enjoy. Nick Natanui, who, you know, we saw his wares on the weekend, what a fabulous player he is. But against North Melbourne in 2013, it took a beautiful mark, one of the best marks of all time, if not the best for that year goes back and slots it to kick a goal after the siren to give West Coast the win at home. Gary Bacanara uh, against Melbourne in the 87 prelim final. We all remember the, the reasons behind that. Jim Steins crossed the line, gave Gary Bacanara an extra 15 metres towards goal. Otherwise, he, there was no way he was going to make the distance from there. That put, um, that put Hawthorne into a grand final. But going back to your point, Wes, 
Um, he then, yeah, it's in the same category as Ross Dunn, Tony Lockett and Gary Ablett Sr. in that they couldn't continue the, the, uh, the story the week after because they got trounced by Carlton in that grand final. And the other West Coast one, which is the rover of the team, Luke Shuey, who kicked a goal against Port Adelaide in the 2017 elimination final and that was um in from about 30 meters out in, in you know in the away team being um obviously with the crowd booing all the rest of it he, ha- he held his nerve and and um continued the journey for for west coast in that final series now the interchange again it's we, we've been spoiled again bill brownless uh, his goal after the siren against footscrow in the 94 semi-final that was um the week before the gary ablett uh the Gary, or I think it might have been two weeks before the Gary Ablett Senior won in '94, um, and then one that we don't want to remember, guys, is <laughs> Nick Nick Davis, and um, it is it is a family show, so I can't use the adjective that goes um, in between his name, but um, yeah, he he obviously in that last quarter, and um, you know, and to quote another Geelong supporters, angst, uh, Anthony Hudson, I see it, but I don't believe it. And we'll finish off on the bench with Carlton captain Steve Kernahan, who had a chance to win the game for Carlton against Essendon in the home and away game in 93. And he missed everything. He kicked it on the full. And, but in fairness to Steve Kernahan, he, he, like Barry Hall, has had a shot after the siren twice. But the first time was against North Melbourne in 89, where he did actually kick a goal in round 22 at Vfold Park. And, and he did still victory for, for Carlton. But then four years later, like I just mentioned, he missed everything. So there's our final six, our ruck division and our interchange, guys. And again, with a bit of a Geelong flavour there again. Well, I think it's fair to say that uh, Steve Kernahan, um, uh, even though he was a great player, if you were going to be choosing one player out of any team to kick for your life at goal, he would not be the one you would choose. <laughs> I'm really interested in the uh, the West Coast presence, both in the Ruck and Rover division. But I'm also intrigued as to, uh, and I'm mindful of the fact that the Team Talk teams are essentially contributed uh, to by a number of different sources. But Dom Sheet doesn't get a mention, and I thought that's a pretty significant one that our Perth supporters would love to have heard raised. I know it wasn't quite the last kick of the game, but uh, it was pretty close, wasn't it? Oh, oh definitely. And, and there's a lot that I've missed out too, Wes. And um, yeah, the... the the Dom Sheet one really, really should be in there when you think about it because that took a lot of nerve, especially against Collingwood MCG Grand Final day. Um, and he wasn't like 15 metres out directly in front. It took a good kick on any day, on any ground to, 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 to put that through. So, yeah, I, I definitely think he, that's one that would easily qualify for this team. The, what I didn't mention, though, was uh, the coach of the team was Alistair Clarkson, who kicked a goal for North against Melbourne in 87 after the siren. Now, not many people would know or remember that because that might have been in the days when they probably didn't televise every game. And I remember hearing that on the radio um, just by chance. And so even when it was brought up on, on Team Talk, a lot of people weren't aware that actually Alistair Clarkson is in that elite club of kicking a goal after the siren. And he's our coach for this team. Oh, you've done a superb job once again, Gus. And uh, to all of the people that contribute to Gus's Team Talk, best of Team Talk, Team of the Week, we do appreciate the, the varying contributions. It's absolutely fantastic. 
Well, so I was just going to say before we uh, before we wrap up, but it would be remiss of us not to mention uh, Billy Brownless against Footscray in the '94 uh, semi-final, uh, uh, one that's still played uh, in highlights packages even to today. And I think Billy's been dining out on that uh, goal for like about the last 25 years, I think. But uh, uh, was it uh, the monkeys off the back, Billy? Billy, yep. you are king of Geelong, from the great <laughs> Sandy Roberts. So yes, well said, well said, Mark. Yes, well, we hope you've enjoyed our program despite the fact that we've been a little bit depleted in numbers. But uh, Mark Brunger and Gus Marini have uh, joined forces and produced just another fantastic podcast. Of course, this podcast is accessible on a range of podcast platforms, including Anchor, Spotify Breaker, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, and now on Overcast, along with being heard throughout Perth on Sport FM 91.3. We thank you for tuning in and we hope you've enjoyed the program. You can look forward to more of the Cat's Whiskers next week. Oh, oh, oh.